the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Monday, December 28th, 2020, as we head into Hour 2. And as we do every Monday in Hour 2, we do so with the great Brandon Weicker, author of one of the most important books of the year, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. Great, uh, great activist on Twitter as well, or active Twitterer, I should say, at We the Brandon. And, uh, of course, he is the publisher of the Weikert Report. And I am told on good authority in finer and finer fettle, finer fettle than he was last week. Brandon, how are you? Welcome. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. And that was a wonderful introduction. Uh, As always, thank you. I am uh, on the mend. Uh, My wife is on the mend. Our kids... Uh, are on the mend from COVID. It is uh, definitely not a fun disease, um, and we just—I just got my test today. I'll find out the results in two days, uh, whether I'm clear or not. But um, I'm definitely feeling better. Still a little tired. Uh, the fatigue is the worst part, um, but uh, I do—I do think we're on the mend. Yeah. For you, Brandon, and uh, for you, and 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 your. Uh, you can say whatever you want. Personally, you don't have to say anything. I'll just for the audience's information, I'll say you're under 50. Um, just just as a just as an understanding point here for you. You said the fatigue was I'm the worst. I don't, I don't mind. Go I'm ahead. Then what was it? Yeah, I'm 32. OK, so it's open kimono right now and I'm 32. OK, <laughs> OK. So um, 32, you said the fatigue was the wor- worst than coughing or anything like that. Yeah, the coughing was bad because I ended up. You cough so much, you basically pull the muscle in your in your chest. Um, so I have some muscle, you know, pain from that. But that's that's fine. I it was it, it it was the fatigue, and I didn't even have it as bad. I mean, my wife for three weeks literally could not get out of bed. Yeah. I mean, she maybe got out for twenty minutes, and then she would going up the stairs. She would get exerted. Yeah. Uh, and you know, we're pretty healthy people. Yeah. Um, so it. It, it, it is definitely it, the worst part is you lose your energy. So you, for me, it was hard. To, I work from home most of the time. That was even before COVID hit. Uh, it was hard for me to complete tasks because I was getting tired after 25, 30 minutes. Uh, so that's the worst part as somebody who works, obviously, is I have deadlines and I can't meet them because I'm literally physically incapable of sitting up at some parts of the day. Sure. Um, so that, for me, was the most annoying part, because I have to pay my bills. Glad, uh, you glad know, you're so, on the mend, um, though. Yes, thank you, yeah. You wrote, uh, yeah, well, it's the lead piece at the Washington Post uh, editorial page. Watch uh, the Times. I'm sorry. What did I say? Post. I, ha- I was criticizing yeah. the Post earlier. A piece Dan Balls wrote. That was why it was on my mind. Washington <laughs> Times. Yes, Washington Times. Tell us. Uh, we're going to get to that, but first. This I thought was really interesting. Your piece over at the Weicker Report: America is headed yeah. toward a bloody revolution. I almost wished you put yeah. a question mark and chain and put the verb in front. But talk, talk to us yes. about that. Well, this is why I should I should have a full time editor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> would you Would you have so succumbed? One, would you have given into that edit? Man. Would you have given into that edit? 
would you have? Yes, I would have, okay, actually. Good, I would have, good, because good. Uh, that, the headline was something I came up with last minute, and uh, I wasn't very happy with the headline, okay. but uh, it is what it is. I um, Yes, so basically I wrote this because, you know, at the time I, I published it yesterday afternoon-ish, it was not yet certain if any of the stimulus bill was going to get passed, right. and I was very frustrated, uh, I think as many Americans were, uh, not because I love big government handouts, but because for the last year we have been, our economy and most Americans have been killed financially uh, because we had the lockdown. And, you know, I thought the lockdowns were a necessary thing in the beginning. I think now it's a little ridiculous because it's like closing the barn door after the horses have gotten out. Uh, but in the beginning we had to do what we did, and the president was right to close down the economy. Um, but the problem was that nobody in Washington thought, hey, if we're going to close down the economy, we better have some kind of fail-safe to help Americans get through this period. And everything was sort of done retroactively, and it was never sufficient because we don't do anything for ordinary Americans at a sufficient level in terms of helping when a crisis hits. Uh, and so I've been looking at the data, and I'm going, you know, something like 14 million, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head right now, but it's in the article, something like 14 million Americans could potentially be evicted at the end of this month if they hadn't passed the, the stimulus bill, uh, something like 12 million Americans are about to lose, or maybe even 16 million Americans are about to lose possibly their unemployment uh, uh, benefits. And the problem is these are not Americans who just don't want to work. These are Americans, for the most part, who lost their jobs because their industries were closed down by the government. And so they can't find work in their industry. And there aren't many other industries that they qualify for work in or that are even hiring uh, right now. So these people are either completely unemployed or woefully underemployed. Uh, and so you have a real crisis here. We're talking like 15, 16 million people could potentially be left destitute. Like we're talking Great Depression Hoovervilles uh, possibly popping up in the next six to eight months if we don't have a long-term strategy for helping people during this, this very tenuous time. And to me, that's how revolutions begin. When you have that many disenfranchised people who are hopeless, have no, no uh, you know, safety net or anything. This is how revolutions begin. And to me, the government, both parties, should not be playing politics with stuff like this, the stimulus bill, because this isn't a question of, well, a natural economic downturn happened and some people just, you know, you win some, you lose some. Oh, well, this was a government-induced lockdown, wherein at least a third of the economy has just been gutted. And there's really no, no hope on the near-term horizon that we're going to return to normal. Even if we completely reopen the country, there are small businesses that have been destroyed, likely that are never going to be reconstituted, because small businesses don't have the kind of reserve that the big businesses do. And so you're talking about millions of Americans potentially completely left destitute. And to sit there and say, well, all, you know, the most you're going to get is $600 per person for you know, this month, and then after that, good luck. Um, and then to even hold that hostage, as our political elites were doing, this is how revolutions begin. And I personally, no matter how bad things get, I am not a revolutionary. And so I, I fear because our revolution in America, when we separated from England, was unique. It was a continuation of the Anglo, the Anglo tradition, the Anglo-Northern Northern European tradition of sort of a, 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 a revolution without going into mania. 
the French and Russian revolutions had a lot more in common with some of the ideas espoused in Southern and Central Europe that they just lost their minds, and it was just nothing but bloodletting that ultimately eventuated either in authoritarianism as represented by Napoleon or the totalitarianism of Lenin and eventually Stalin. And unfortunately today, if we have a revolution, I fear we will either go into authoritarianism outright or, God help us, totalitarianism. It will not be good. So I don't want a revolution. And all we can do is provide basic assistance to the people who've been most negatively impacted by these these, these closures, and we will avoid the, the revolution, and we can pick up the pieces thereafter. But if we don't help them, the revolution comes, and then we lose everything. We're talking to Brandon Weikert and uh, his piece. I want to do several of his pieces, but this one uh, in particular, you. you bet, it, it was uh, published on your website yesterday, America is Headed Toward a Bloody Revolution. And I want to just explore this a little with you. I agree in part and 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 dissent in part, and you can convince sure. me where I'm wrong or right. Um, so one of the interesting things about the impetus or catalyst would be a better word for this the the revolution that you see see as possible. <clears throat> one of the one of the major catalysts is. Um, what we've done to our economy it wasn't it wasn't some kind of supernatural uh devastation i mean you know i i understand the pandemic is one thing but it's really the response to the pandemic at this point which is responsible for the economic uh the economic woes that we're going through or that so many people are going through and i didn't see in november uh, on the on election day and its aftermath, I don't see an American population that is um, revolting strongly against those measures. Um, does that make sense? The, there, there, there is a cause. There is a cause for our economic woes, and I didn't see a really strong reaction in the election to that. In fact. So you, so you- yeah, uh, let me let me make one yeah, more just, point, I, uh, and I'll go yeah, to break yeah. for you to um, sure. think on it over the break. In fact, if there was a party that stood further against the shutdown and lockdowns, it would have been the Republican Party, and they did okay in certain places, but it certainly wasn't a wave election for the Republican right. Party. Let's pick up on that and you tell me where I'm right and wrong on this when we come back. We'll be right back with Brandon Weicker. Happy to take your calls too as always with Brandon 602-508-0960. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson show. Delighted to have with us as we always do on Mondays Brandon Weicker, publisher of the Weicker Report. And um, there he is. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> on the mend, on the mend, almost there, almost there. And uh, author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. Very provocative piece he wrote, America Headed Toward a Bloody Revolution. So what I was postulating right before the break, Branton, is the reason – and I go back and forth on, on some of what you're saying here in my own head. I'm just mm-hmm. thinking out loud with you. The reason I wonder about this is I don't think the November election – was a very um, telling referendum on lockdown, shutdown politics. That didn't seem yeah. to me that Americans, by and large, rose up and said no more. Although it does That's seem true. like they are becoming less patient, 
At the same time, I don't know if the memos are getting to Joe Biden because he seems to be intent on uh, on 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 endorsing further yeah. further measures, including you know mandates where he can, et cetera, et cetera, and keeping Anthony Fauci, who I think actually is a little dis- more discredited by the week, but we can get into that later. Yeah. Anyway, my, my my thesis: you take it as you wish. So I think I I. I think the reason you had this sort of divided election where there really was no mandate, I don't know if that's necessarily related to lockdown, people being pro or against. I think it's more just the nature of our political system today where voters, it's sort of, you know, it's like a football game. You have your team and you're sticking with it no matter what. Yep. Um, I, I, and so I don't know if you're ever going to be able to get a kind of a snapshot of what people want I can tell you this. So there's a theory, and this is I'm writing an article on this right now. There is a theory among our friends on the very firm right who think that the reason Trump lost, they look at the they look at the data and they say, well, setting aside the fraud issue, the the reason he might have actually lost is because he seems to have lost white voters by about five points. Uh, and their theory now is, well, it's because he started pandering. Uh, you know, to to you know these other groups of people, uh, and they think that that was a mistake, and he should have been harder on the law enforcement side, harder. You know, you know the litany. So the I do, but is, I don't agree with it. I don't either. Okay, I don't either. This is this is what I was going for. So I do think he did lose uh, at least by by five the white vote, and I think the reason was because that he came across to many middle class white families, notably young families like my own. Now, I voted for the president happily, but I had some reservations about his COVID response. And you and I talked about this. Yeah, you, this yeah you and I aren't exactly eye to eye, but it's yeah. okay. It's okay. And, and I think I think that many of the kind of white middle class, particularly younger families, they may not have liked them before, but they sort of listened to him and voted for him with their holding their nose because ultimately... You know, he was a businessman, and he was promising economic returns, and, and over the last three of the four years, we did have positive gains, and so it was fine. But when COVID hit, and particularly parents of young children, they were saying, well, wait, this pandemic is here, and I'm getting mixed messages from the White House. My governor's saying one thing, my mayor's saying another thing, and the, and the federal government's doing something completely different, and they don't even seem to be on the same page. And now the president is, is opening the economy up, and that's great. We want to open the economy, but are our kids going to get sick? Are we going to get sick? Are we going to get our parents sick? And so I think he lost the, particularly the white vote, I think because he came across as not compassionate. I think because he didn't come across as consistent in his messaging on COVID, and notably, I think because they, he was. He made it easier for his opponents to paint him as uncaring because he was going to reopen the economy no matter what, rather than adhere to what the blessed doctors were saying, uh, notably Dr. Fauci. Which, of course, you know, I don't think he's a saint, but the imagery, the perception, was the problem. He had big perception problems this year, which normally for Trump was not a problem. He was normally a master of sort of manipulating the perception, and obviously perception is power in politics. And so I think he lost because he lost a lot of the the sort of the middle, upper middle class voter who are very germ conscious, and they were scared out of their wits because the media is saying one thing, and then he's saying one thing in the beginning, and then he's changing course in April, and and, you know, and, and the, 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 the disease uh, keeps 
propagating. People keep dying. It's the you know you know the the, the yeah. So again, um, I agree in part and dissent in part. I, I, yeah. I on the big on the big picture, I agree, but I. Uh, it's kind of I don't know if your memory goes far as far back as the George W. Bush presidency, no, I, <laughs> but, yeah, I remember it very well. but there was a moment there that seemed to last about three years <laughs> in all candor, where it it was almost as if it felt like the White House was outsourcing the defensive rhetoric, um, which yeah. is to say relying an awful lot on op-ed writers and talk radio to defend yeah. it. And yeah. I, f- I think there was an element of that here, uh, to be honest with you, on two of the biggest issues of the year. Uh, one of them was COVID and the other was everything involved in the category race, if you will. Um, you know, I, I, so I, I think I think a lot of this job of doing Trump in on those issues was media based, to be honest with you. Yeah. But that he didn't meet the media where they were and was coming off either too stridently at times or um, too harshly, if you will. And while I think in the main right on the issues and right on the positions in the main, you're right. There was there was mixed messaging on on covid. Um, and on race, I think he might have been a little bit too defensive where, you know, it was relied on by, frankly, the likes of us and the business you and I are in to say, no, wait, hold on. This is right. who Trump is. This is what he's done. Right. Here's 20 times he's done X. You didn't get that yeah. from the White House. And you get why no. you, you, you get his frustration with it. But I think the media did a hell of a job on him. I really do. And I think when you're talking white voters, white voters are susceptible to something very strong, I think, that the media figured out. And that's being called racist. Well, it's being called racist. But but I got to tell you, I I really think all of that stuff wouldn't have mattered if he had just been strong, firm and consistent about COVID. Hmm. And if he had just been I think that I think that this was his test. The okay. crisis is the ultimate test of any president, yep, no matter sure, what time, sure, no matter sure, what party. Sure. And in the eyes of many Americans, particularly people in my generation, he failed the test. Okay. And, uh, you know, this is something that his boomer voters don't want to hear. But I'm telling you, there are legitimate reasons for why he lost. It was not just because they have been fraud. Okay. There are actual reasons. And there's a chain of events. If he had handled COVID better and more consistently, if he had turned into the disease okay. All right. and not let like, no, the wartime presidency, I, I, I get that. I take I take the point. I take the point. Let me, but but there's another point I want to I want to push back on, which is where the country is ideologically, yeah. and I'd li- I think that's a big part of it too. If I can pick up on that when yeah. we come back with you, Brandon, I'd love to. I appreciate it. We'll be right back and happy to take your calls as well at six zero two five zero eight. Zero nine six zero. We'll be right back with Brandon Weikert. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Brandon Weikert is our guest, and uh, really interesting and provocative piece at his uh, Weikert Report: America Headed Toward a Bloody Revolution. Let me let me let me postulate something else with you, Brandon, which is the ideological mood or um, faith or perspective in America. Um, I, you know, I've been, I've been for a couple of weeks now talking about, I, 
the point that I just I don't think we're a center right country like we used to convince we, ourselves that we were, and I think no mistakenly way. I don't think we have been for a while, <laughs> frankly. Nope. And I, I know I pundits agree. love to say we are, and Republicans love to give feel good interviews saying that we are. I just, I, I just have about ten reasons to think we aren't, yep. which. I don't mean to say to be depressed or to depress people. I mean it to say, roll up your sleeves, pull up your socks. We have a lot of work to do. And to that degree, you know, one might argue America went through a a revolution that was a little bloody um, over the summer. um, But it it, kind of stuck and it kind of held. And most of the work is a revolution that didn't require or need or have knives and guns. And that's what took place in our education system and really almost every other institution for the last 30 years. Anyway. Well, you and I have kind of touched on this before, but never explicitly. So um, I I don't think this country has been center-right since probably Calvin Coolidge. Um, I don't. I, I don't think this country. I, you look at the way that FDR was embraced. You look at the way that that Americans venerate. Just look at the way they rank presidents yeah, today. Yeah. Top five is always usually some Democrat from the modern age. FDR, JFK, LBJ. Uh, LBJ was a terrible human being, and yet he is. I mean, he was the worst warmonger we've ever had, and yet he is venerated not just by the left. But by pretty much most Americans as being a tough, good old boy and got stuff done. Uh, so this country hasn't been center right in decades. Uh, we've had some good Republican presidents, but it's always been within the framework of uh, sort of a democratic regime, capital D. Well, let me uh, let me build and, on that. Let me just give further yeah. proof to that. Ronald Reagan in '76 learned the lesson, and he said, "I will go yeah. after." The Great Society. I will not go after the New Deal. Yes, right. Well, yes, and, and he would not touch Henry FDR. Olson, right? In other words, yeah. Yes, uh, the writer Henry Olson, who's uh, you know a colleague of ours, yeah. uh, used to write for American Greatness. Now right. he's at Washington Post. Yeah. But this has been a long time period, yeah. and I think he's right. Um, and uh, when you look at Donald Trump, Donald Trump won. He was the only Republican in 2016. That was going to win. That was going to beat Hillary. Right. Not just because she Agreed. didn't anticipate him, no. but because he embraced the Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid state. He told voters from the beginning, I'm not coming to take away your entitlements. No. I'm coming to manage them better. I'm a businessman. I can manage them better. I will make sure you get what's yours because you paid into the system and you deserve it because you're aging now and you're retiring. And that was the contract you entered into as a citizen. He never said he was going to get rid of those things. I got I got sick to my stomach beginning around 2018 when I realized whoever was running his personnel office were hiring all the retreads from the Bush t- Bush era, yeah. all the people, all the libertarian types. None of the people who were responsible for Trump winning. Trump won because he came across as a center left guy. He he ran on a big government ticket. He didn't run on cutting government. He didn't run on the traditional conservative platform. And when he started governing as that, he started losing. He started losing support. 
he was a populist. I, I um, yeah. See, I would, I wouldn't, I don't, I wouldn't say he ran on a center left. I would say he ran in many oh, non, yeah, non ideological areas. Is how I would put. Right, it. but you know, sixty seven percent of Americans yeah. want health care provided right. for the government. I get for that. Long. I mean, I th- th- that. this is this has been consistent polling. So the conservatives have been consistent, and this is what I was talking about. They appear heartless. They appear, you know, and that's that. And we live in a very emotional era. Mm-hmm. And so, when you appear heartless, yep. and you have millions of Americans who do go bankrupt over these issues, you're going to lose on a national scale. You might win congressional races, you might win local races, but on a national election, and you really need to be able to win on a national level. We're becoming a marginal party because we haven't figured out that on many socioeconomic issues. The American people are predisposed to sort of that center-left paradigm. Interesting. Let's talk about that because there's something else um, in the in the middle of the room we have to address as well. I'm Seth Leaps, and he's Brandon Weikert. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I wanted to put in a word for balance of nature. A lot of my friends who I've uh, got uh, taken it and give me a bunch of feedback, all of them love it. They've been saying that, um, you know, especially during this time of year, you know, you wake up a little more groggy, you had a late night, um, you're depleting, you know, your natural resources. It is great first thing in the morning. Uh, to get your day back on track from a long or rough night before. What with tens of thousands of vital nutrients, that makes all the sense in the world to me. Uh, I take it every day for general health, energy, boosted immunity. I'd love you to as well. And they're making it easy by giving you 35% off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. Just a daily dose is all you need. And free shipping. It's a great product, and uh, that's a great deal. Give Balance of Nature a call at 800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com and use discount code BALANCE. You can always start your day again with Balance of Nature. Um, talking to Brandon Weikert. Brandon, um, an- a- another elephant in this room, or maybe 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 hammer and sickle or donkey in this room is the better imagery, <laughs> if you will, is... Um, the 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 thing that the conservative movement has done the least well in, and that is the education system. Uh, yeah. Whether we're talking higher education or elementary and secondary, I don't care. Um, we've done really poorly at any effort of reform. And that means that every year you are cranking out millions – Millions of left-wing, educated, indoctrinated, either high school grads or college grads. Millions of them, um, yeah. and 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 that that just that that will change a country. Um, the left knows it, and I'll tell you how much it's changed. You may have seen um, Dan Balls's piece in the Washington Post. It's what I confused the papers with earlier. Yeah. And he has this sense. He's the political reporter of record for The Washington Post. Been there a long time. For Trump supporters. Yeah, yeah, right. He writes for Trump supporters, cultural preservation of an America long dominated by a white Christian majority remains a cornerstone of their beliefs that helps to explain their attachment to a president who has warned that the Democrats and their allies are determined to rewrite the nation's history and destroy its heritage. That makes me want to scream epithets I can't get away with on 
on on on a on a radio show. Um, I mean, it's 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 an assault. It's an insult. It's a slander. It's a libel, and it will yeah. go unaddressed except perhaps on talk radio. As opposed, you may remember this to when the political reporter of record for the Washington Post, circa 1993 wrote that the evangelical base of the Republican Party was, quote, you'll never, I'll never forget the words, quote, poor, uneducated, and easy to command. They had to publish a retraction the next day. That's the yeah. difference. Yeah. That's the trajectory. They can write it now without need for retraction. Back then, they could yeah. not. Yes. Yes. It makes us all misdemeaning. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. True. Um, no, I mean, but it, so we talked about this, too, I think, over the summer at one point. Um, my theory is the Republican Party will always set itself up for defeat, not only if it comes across as being not compassionate enough, particularly during a biological crisis such as the, what we've experienced with COVID this year, but also if all of these well-funded think tanks and activist groups on the right, if they don't actually take the time to do what the left did 100 years ago, and start putting their people into these unions, into these teachers' unions, into the, the education system to get jobs and, and become teachers for life. The problem is many conservative Republican types, they don't want to go into the field that we need them to go into because there's usually not enough money, there's not enough return. Let's face it, our people like to make money. They like to be productive. They like to have you know, money at the end of the table, at the end of the, the, the lines, so they can retire and take care of their families and whatever. The problem is, the left, going back to the progressive era, for about three or four generations now, has assiduously worked the long march through the institution. They have had a, a century lead time on us, and we're now at the end result of that century where they've taken over unions, they've taken over institutions, taken over academia, they've taken over the entertainment. They've taken over every, all, the, all what Lenin would refer to as the transmission belts of society, and they didn't care about the financial rewards because they were dedicated to their ideology. So what we now need to do is look at the long-range plan and have a, a century-long plan to say, hey, we're going to do exactly what the left did a century ago, except we're going to do it for our cause, and we're going to take over those institutions. And in three or four generations, hopefully, we'll be able to get our country back on track. But nothing we do in the near term, especially if we come across as these kind of, you know, hard-nosed, you know, uncompassionate people, uh, nothing we do in the short term is ever going to, to, to pan out for us politically, at least at the national level, because so many Americans for three generations now have been inculcated in this cult of leftism. I agree. Tom Wolfe once said we need a great relearning and I think that yeah. that still abides. A great relearning is what's necessary, and it doesn't happen overnight, as this didn't happen overnight. Uh, long right. march. It was a long march. We just steadily avoided it or ignored yeah. it. Um, Thought that we could make enough money to insulate ourselves. Well, how many rich boomers do you know who are funding, you know, all you know, Turning Point and all these other groups? Why are they doing it? Because they're realizing, uh-oh. We spent a lifetime making money and doing what we thought was right, and they did the right thing for their families and themselves. But now they're looking around worried about their grandkids because their grandkids are now coming out of these colleges that they paid a lot of money to send them to, and they're coming out and they're these screaming. Oh lessons. gosh, I have <laughs> such a great billboard for that. If you think you can make enough money to defend yourselves, then look at the McCloskeys. You know the St. Louis couple. Right. 
<laughs> you know, exactly. right? They live in a gated community. They hold their legal weapons and they get prosecuted for and trying to defend themselves from a BLM a riot, huh? And my understanding is that he was a donor for Democrat Party in, in St. Louis, that he was a pretty big deal for them. Oh my and, gosh. and he was a more conservative Democrat. That was my understanding. I don't know if that's accurate. Well, but in either event, I mean, the idea that you can. Um, that you can um, build your own uh, sanctuary here is just it's it, it no, as, a, as an upper middle class person. Law. No, you can't do it. That is a, that is the lie of libertarianism, right. and I am very down on libertarianism. <laughs> I know I'm down on the libertarian <laughs> presidential candidate. Do you realize? <laughs> no, I am. I mean, there, there yes. are several states. You know, I know would not I know. have been close calls, but for her. Oh, it's like what Ross Perot did to George H. I think so. I, mean, I think so. I've looked at that evidence had, a couple ways, but yeah. I think ultimately that is true. I do. I do. We wouldn't have that. had Clinton, right. if, if I think so. Perot hadn't. Yeah, so. I think that's right. I think that's right. Not but there's no question. Yeah, there's about. no question yeah. about it here. Well, uh, buddy, we have uh, one more short segment. We didn't do your Washington sure. Times. Do so you want to do it real quick on the other side? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. yeah, let's do your Washington Times piece real quickly on the other side. I hate to let you go without talking about it, but this was a fascinating sure. article. We'll be right back with uh, Brandon Waker. <laughs> Welcome back to the Seth Leapson show. <laughs> I know, right? Um, it's hard not to whistle to some Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> yes, I'm assuming. Uh, I'm assuming that was you whistling. Yes, that was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brandon, I wanted to move to your Russian uh, uh, the, the 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 solar winds hack, but. Um, I can't because uh, this this piece has been so provocative to our listeners that you wrote. <laughs> so I'm going to stay with it on one more element okay. here, if that's okay. okay. Your piece, America and a Bloody Revolution. So one of our listeners writes, um, great point about the need for our long countermarch through the institutions. Is yeah. anyone developing this strategy? What are the priorities? Where to begin? I have a few ideas. Um, I, I don't know if you've thought it through. Maybe we should write something together on this. I don't know. But yes, off the I top of your to. head, where would you start? Well, the first thing is we're going to need, instead of giving money, for instance, to, you know, I don't want to name names, but I think I think about 80% of our activist uh, think tank type groups that suck up all the money I think that they're irrelevant. I don't think they're actually having the Amen to that, but also donors and universities. Amen to to that, and I will add donors and universities. I think these people are all looking for a quick fix, and they don't understand that this this damage goes back to the 1910s and 12s. You're not going to get a quick fix. No election is going to solve the problem. The problem is it's it's systemic. You know, there's that word again. It's systemic liberalism or leftism. And the only way you can combat a systemic problem is with a long-term systemic solution. Mm-hmm. And so you you've got to get you've got to create an organization or organizations that are literally going to train the next kind of shock troops of our our side to go in these little clusters like the left did a hundred years ago. Take over one union and propagate. Take yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's right. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't use my pet peeve, which is, uh, you know, governing school boards. 
uh, which no one thinks about running for, as right. some do, but not enough. It wouldn't be hard. And governors, you know, I don't want to completely say politicians are are are, are without um, uh, weapon weaponry here because they are. Ronald Reagan showed you can take off on universities, yes. at least the public ones, as a governor. So there are certain well, of Reagan those things. A, Let's a pick up on this next week, though. This this is such sure. an important point, and I think really. Maybe you and I might even consider writing this up somewhere because I, I think, I think we should. yeah I think I we've think seized we on something you know we're all as I say energized to try and do everything we can to save Georgia um, but we've got to save America and it's not going to be something you can do in six weeks. All right, Brandon Weikert, God love you as always. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I'm Seth Liebson. Great, Ariel Davidson coming up. We'll be right back.